one of the first things I always recommend families do is before they even enter a healthcare facility is go meet with your local fire department and have a conversation with them about the fact that you or your loved one has ALS and here's what would be beneficial for you if you're ever needing to call 911. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Connecting ALS. My name is Mike Stevenson, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeremy Holden. And Jeremy, it's the second full week in March. A lot of families in the U.S. are on spring break. Uh, Of course, it's taking a different form this year for many. Nevertheless, Hope it's a chance for people to uh, rest and recharge. Yeah, and I know here where I am and, and you and I have talked about it, it's one of those simple things, but I think in, in March we start to see the weather start to turn mm-hmm. and I think opportunities to get outside start to become, uh, they're, they're right there on the horizon. So hopefully people are finding opportunities to, to get some fresh air and enjoy some spring weather. Sunshine and warmer weather, always welcome. In addition to it being spring break, the second week in March also means Patient Safety Awareness Week. And we've lined up two excellent guests on separate but related topics. We spoke to Leslie Ryan with the ALS Association about considerations for patient safety and how families living with ALS can be proactive in hospital environments. Then I had the chance to connect with Lauren Brown a nurse coordinator at the Providence ALS Clinic in Portland about the role she plays in a multidisciplinary setting. And as is often the case, Jeremy, uh, we learned a lot from both of our guests. Yeah, uh, you know, you mentioned Patient Safety Week and it was fascinating to hear from Leslie the almost dual role of educating healthcare providers about some of the unique challenges that people with ALS face and and how to factor Mm -hmm. that into their care. And then also empowering people with ALS to advocate on their own behalf, both for caregivers and for a person with ALS, if you move into, or if you're approaching a hospital or healthcare setting, how can you advocate for yourself? We'll we'll share some resources in the show notes, but really excited to bring this conversation with Leslie to listeners. Yeah, preparation is key. We're going to talk about that a lot. And I think we should start there. Let's let's get into our conversation with Leslie Ryan uh, of the ALS Association. We're on the phone today with Leslie Ryan, Director of Education and Professional Development Programs at the ALS Association. Thanks for joining us on Connecting ALS, Leslie. Thanks for having me. We're excited to talk to you. The primary reason we brought you on today was to talk about Patient Safety Awareness Week, which is an annual uh, global recognition event happening this week. And it's intended to encourage everyone to learn more about uh, healthcare safety. The World Health Organization estimates that 134 million adverse events occur each year due to unsafe care in hospitals. Specifically related to ALS, Leslie, for those living with a disease, what are some of the first things that come to mind when making hospital visits and thinking about patient safety? Sure. So I think one of the biggest things for people with ALS and their loved ones to remember is that healthcare personnel don't come across ALS as often as one would think. Mm -hmm. Emergency personnel don't either. And so I think the 
The thing to always keep in mind is needing to remember to do ongoing education. And as much as we as an organization would love to say, we have educated every emergency room personnel across the country or every hospital employee or every paramedic, that's just not realistic. And so remembering to educate them in the moment and do some work ahead of time will really help their experience when there is an emergency or they do need to go to the hospital for any reason. Yeah. And so think about the infrequency with which certain healthcare providers are going to encounter a person with ALS and then magnify that over other conditions that that might be novel, that might not be something that uh, an EMT or someone encounters every day. Even Mm -hmm. if we were to have that touch point and educate everybody in the health system, there's still uh, a, an onus, it sounds like, on on the patient to kind of advocate for themselves. What, what are some ways that, that that can be done? What, what can a person with ALS have in mind as they're entering a healthcare facility? Sure. I think one of the first things I always recommend families do is before they even enter a healthcare facility is go meet with your local fire department and have a conversation with them about the fact that you or your loved one has ALS and here's what would be beneficial for you if you're ever needing to call 911. They all have systems that then they can flag that at your address, there is someone living with ALS. And so maybe you ask them to flag not to use oxygen if there's trouble breathing because it's more of a um, a diaphragm weakness issue than a needing oxygen issue. And so use an Ambu bag and, you know, help them breathe that way, right? So you can have that conversation ahead of time so that the um, emergency personnel can have it on file that if they, you know, if there is an emergency and they come to the house, this person with ALS lives there and here's, here are their needs and here's their current, you know, status and level of function. This is also really important for if a caregiver has an emergency. We, we many times focus on the person with ALS, but our caregivers can have health emergencies as well. Mm. And so, having our emergency personnel understand that if 911 is called and it's the caregiver maybe having some sort of a challenge, that they know that there's someone in the house that will also need some care and to make sure that that person is is set up with a, a caregiver, you know, a neighbor or a friend or whomever to come in and provide some extra support. And then once you've gotten to the hospital, whether that's you going on your own or, or you know, by calling 911, asking to go or choosing to go to the hospital where your ALS clinic is located, if that is um, something that you're able to do, is always very beneficial because that means there are at least hospital personnel who will know you and know ALS. Um, If not, making sure you do notify your clinic team as to where you're at so that they can, you know, your ALS neurologist and um, even your nurse coordinator can be in touch and help with directing some of the care um, if and when appropriate. And also being prepared with a letter from your neurologist that allows your caregiver to be in the room with you, especially in these COVID times, right, when caregivers may not be allowed in. A caregiver needs to be there if you have speech problems or Mm. if you need extra help with mobility and a nurse's aide can't get there fast enough. So um, having that letter from your neurologist explaining the benefit of having your caregiver with you can really go far. 
On top of that, having all of your medical information gathered and at the ready is extremely beneficial. And we have some great resources for that that people living with ALS can get through our website or through their local chapter. We have a medical information packet that really helps organize all of the names and numbers of your doctors, all of your medications, dosages for those, any adaptive equipment that you use, allergies, all of that stuff that's really important to communicate all in one folder. We also have some medical information cards that people can carry with them in their purse or their wallet that give a brief update of this information. We have something called the file of life that can be put on the refrigerator and can, can you know, it's a magnetic pouch and has all this information, right? So we have a lot of ways to keep this information organized and handy. The onus lies on the person living with a and their caregiver to keep it up to date. But um, again, we've got this information so that you can pass it over. And that goes back to educating then the people that you encounter when you go into the hospital so that they know kind of where you're at and what your current status is and who they can call for questions if you're not available to answer them. Thanks for that wealth of information, Leslie. That's, that's a great kind of overview of what's available and what people should be thinking about. I've met a number of individuals living with ALS who do carry info cards and information like you're referencing, and, and it really kind of gives them peace of mind in situations where they may end up requiring uh, emergency medical attention. You talked about caregivers a little bit earlier. Are there specific caregiver resources available um, in this information packet that you referenced? I always encourage caregivers to fill out the information, like, packet for themselves as well as the person living with ALS. Mm. Same thing with the file of life, right? You know, we need to know the, the caregiver's health information. I think that preparing again for them to also have an emergency because we don't know who will, I think that's extremely important. And so these materials, while they are, are branded to us and have some really great information that are pertinent to people living with ALS around say, respiratory equipment or things like that, they can be used for our caregivers as well. Leslie, it strikes me one of the nice things about the resource guides, and, and we can share those resources in the in the show notes, but with those resources can help guide someone's thinking around the questions they should be asking or the potential pitfalls that may lie ahead. Earlier, you talked about oxygen and how the traditional approach that emergency response folks might use, oxygen might not be best in, in the instance of a person with ALS. Are there other kind of unknown questions that, that it might not occur to someone to think about down the road that are unique to uh, the ALS community that are kind of contrary to what would traditionally be done in an emergency setting? There definitely are. I think one of the things that people don't think about as often um, is positioning. And what a simple thing, but laying someone down flat, maybe to do a test such as an MRI, can really make it harder for someone with ALS to breathe. And so they may need to have the head of the bed inclined. They may not be able to tolerate an MRI because they can't lay flat and keep breathing. Mm. And so Thinking about things as simple as positioning are extremely important. I think the other thing that is really important going in and making sure that people know you have ALS up front is slurred speech because sometimes someone can come in with slurred speech and depending on the frame of mind, uh, you know, 
for whomever is greeting that person at the door or, or wherever is that the patient's under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Mm. Well, that's not the case, right? Is their slurred speech is because of their ALS. And so it goes back to that communicating about, I have ALS from the very beginning and here are, here are my challenges. You know, I have slurred speech, so I have a communication board with me or a communication device and always bring a rapid access eye gaze board or some yes, no system, something very simple for if your communication device isn't working or you forgot your charger, always remember chargers for all of hmm. your adaptive equipment, right? But um, having a way to communicate so that if your speech is slurred or it's a frenetic situation and, you, you know, people aren't able to slow down and, and listen to what you have to say with slurred speech, then they're able to get that information as well from you. And so explaining, I have trouble breathing. I use non-invasive ventilation and I need to have it on and, you know, bring that with you, bring your feeding tube formula with you so that you have less interruptions in your, your health and your care and make sure people understand you cannot lay me flat. You cannot leave me without a call button nearby and you must position mm -hmm. it under my head or hand or by my head or by my knee or all of those things I think also will help prevent any adverse incidents while in the hospital, but also just make the person living with ALS feel more safe and secure and comfortable. And again, having that advocate with them, having their caregiver in the room will also help that process because they can speak up for them. They can move the call button if needed or whatever. Patient and caregiver advocacy is so important in these situations and making individuals and their families feel empowered uh, to deliver that information and feel safe to deliver that information is key. The other side of it, as you said earlier, is proactive education. In general, Leslie, do you feel like the healthcare system, at least here in the U.S., is more aware of ALS-specific needs and better equipped to handle them today versus maybe you know, eight to 10 years ago, or is there still much learning to be done given, as you said, how infrequently practitioners come across those living with ALS? I would say that they are absolutely more informed as um, ALS has kind of gained a broader understanding in society in general. It's been a really fascinating journey to watch over the last 10 to 20 years where this disease has come. And we now see cases of ALS being featured on drama TV shows, right? And mm -hmm. the Ice Bucket Challenge obviously brought a lot of attention to the disease. And all of these things do impact knowledge and understanding of the disease, at least, long enough for people to pause and say, oh, wait, I, I, I need to remember to think differently on this one. And our healthcare system is made up of you know, hundreds of thousands of amazing providers who who just want what's best for the person in their care. And so them not understanding the nuances of every ALS patient is by no means a criticism. It is just a nature of they may not come across ALS patients on a regular basis, like you said. And so the more proactive we can be with educating them and sharing our experiences and sharing information, the better then the patient experience will be in the end. And 
we will have taught that healthcare provider something in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And which will only go on to to better their experience and their care for the next time. But I, it definitely is improving by leaps and bounds and, and people are understanding this disease and understanding how people are living with ALS. And, you know, we have so many treatments in the, in the sense of non-invasive ventilation and feeding tubes and different therapies and, you know, positioning and, and, and adaptive equipment that is really allowing people to live full lives with ALS. And so therefore they are being encountered more in the hospital system because they're not just going home to die. And that's great news. Thank you again so much, Leslie Ryan, Director of Education and Professional Development Programs at the ALS Association. We really appreciate your time and insight on uh, patient safety uh, during this important week. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. And I, I really hope people access the resources that we have available to them and reach out uh, for more information if they need it. Lots of good info from Leslie there about patient safety and things to be aware of in emergency medical situations or just when you're planning a trip uh, into a hospital or a similar setting. Let's now jump right into my call with our second guest, nurse coordinator Lauren Brown. Today, I am connecting with Lauren Brown, an ALS nurse coordinator at the Providence ALS Center in Portland. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We wanted to talk to you because most who are familiar with ALS clinics and how they operate can attest to the critical role that nurse coordinators and practitioners play in those environments. And we're going to cover that. But let's start, uh, if you don't mind, Lauren, with how you personally got into nursing as your chosen profession. Yeah, so I got into ALS, well, a little bit personally, um, Mm. because my dad was diagnosed whenever I was 12 years old. Um, Before that, my family was full of lawyers and teachers, so I had no exposure to the healthcare world, Mm. and then um, was kind of thrown into healthcare, and I was in a small town. I lived in liberal Kansas, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's a beautiful town, of course, but it's Mm -hmm. very small and in the middle of nowhere, so healthcare, everybody who has ALS and lives very far from a big city knows that it's difficult. Right. So I saw a lot of what can go wrong and kind of wanted to figure out how I could make it go right. And that's kind of how I ended up going into nursing. Wonderfully ended up in Portland and found the Providence ALS Center and they amazingly gave me a job. I don't know how, Mm. (laughs) Um, but now I've been here for four years and it's going great. Well, uh, I'm very sorry to hear about your, your father's diagnosis uh, first and and having gone through that experience, Lauren, and, and obviously that's motivating your um, your path. When you got to Providence and, and started working directly with others living with ALS, did you feel like um, that kind of validated your decision and then you knew that's where you wanted to be? Oh, for sure. I knew as soon as I started on the path of healthcare that I wanted to go into neurology I didn't know that I was going to end up specifically in ALS. I thought I was going to have to stay broad. Mm -hmm. But as soon as the position, I mean, it was just perfect that the position was there as soon as I graduated and that 
I didn't have to do anything else. I got to go right into what I love and I've gotten to stay here. That's great to hear. It does seem kind of faded hearing that story. For our listeners who are curious about how things operate in a multidisciplinary ALS clinic, because not everyone is familiar with that setting, can you tell us about uh, the Providence ALS Center and the makeup of your clinical team there? So for the big team clinics, we have two neurologists, and you're going to see one neurologist in between clinics, but then you get to see either neurologist so that either one knows your care. And that means that anytime you call in, the neurologist knows you, which is helpful. Mm. Then we have a pulmonologist, which not all ALS clinics do, but it's really helpful because respiratory is such a big part of ALS. We also have a respiratory therapist that does our breathing tests. We have an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, a nurse, the social worker. And our social worker is actually from the ALS Association, which is really nice to have that connection just right immediate. We don't have to um, find the, we don't have to bring in the ALS Association later. It's just right there. And then we also have a registered dietitian. It sounds like a a very complete team and and analogous to a lot of the clinics uh, that we we hear from. And and there's a reason that all those team members are in there. In your role as nurse coordinator, Lauren, what are you responsible for on a typical clinic day? So on the clinic day, we go in and we're kind of like the, one of our nurses calls us the air traffic controllers. (laughs) We make sure that everything runs correctly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We also do the ALS functional rating scale with the patients, uh, which is the ALS FRS, and Mm -hmm. make sure that that gets done every clinic so that we can track the progression and also see how they're functioning on that day, both. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, our biggest role is just to make sure that the clinic day runs well, but also after clinic. So we're the Mm -hmm. ones that put in the orders make sure that if it was supposed to happen, it does happen. And that the patient really has a point person. We don't want a patient to go home and feel like they have to call all the specialists because there are a lot of us. We don't want them to try to hunt down which one to call. Just call me because that's what I'm here for. And then I will hunt down which one needs to help because it's not always straightforward who can help. If you're asking about bed mobility that can be Mm -hmm. the physical therapist but it could also also be the occupational therapist but i have both of their cell phone numbers so i'll figure it out a lot quicker yeah yeah absolutely and and what you're describing is is similar to what i've seen nurse coordinators really are the glue uh in those environments or the the straw that stirs the drink if you will and uh, for you is seeing the different specialists come in and the visit play out as it does. How key is the collaboration that happens between clinicians? Are you are you talking to one another throughout the visit? Do you huddle up before or after? What sort of communication happens during the, the clinical visit? Oh, the communication is vital. So we communicate in between visits as needed. If there's something that happens, especially like a breathing number that's, you know, really critical, I will go find the pulmonologist and let them know or let the neurologist know just before their visit so that they can kind of adjust what they're going to say during that visit. Mm-hmm. But then after the visit, we have our big team meeting. Right now it's virtual. I personally liked it when we would be around a big conference table, but sure. we have to adjust for COVID. So right now it's virtual, but we all um, 
get to talk about the patients individually and give our picture of what we saw so that we're all on the same page. And sometimes things come out and the patient didn't say, oh yeah, I have trouble, I have trouble turning in bed. Mm-hmm. And they didn't say it to the physical therapist. They said it to the dietitian, and that mm. <laughs> it just didn't come out in that visit. But now right. we can take care of it. Yep, yep. As you said, communication so critical. You mentioned the pandemic, and obviously we're we're about a year now into uh, this situation. It has changed so much about healthcare. What sort of of major adjustments have you in the clinic uh, had to make uh, during the pandemic? So we always stayed open to absolutely necessary in-person visits and just extra cleaning all of the obvious things that everybody's doing, you know, but Uh we really had to slow down our in-person visits and went virtual for a while. We're opening back up now as things are slowing down to more in-person, but we're still staying virtual. I personally think that is a great thing. Um, Uh I think that's something that the pandemic gave us coming from a previous ALS caregiver that lived in the middle of nowhere. Mm. It's amazing because my dad would have to travel so far hours. I mean, I think it was eight to nine hours that he had to travel to get to an ALS clinic. Yeah. And it was just not doable whenever he got really sick. As soon as he started falling, he stopped Mm. going and he Mm -hmm. didn't get the care he needed. And that's true for our patients too. And so I'm seeing patients that didn't get care for years getting care and their outcomes are going to be so much better now. They're getting equipment that they didn't get before. They're getting home health now because we have that access. So the pandemic is terrible. Definitely not saying anything about that, but it did give us this one bright point where we have these virtual visits. Yeah, something of a silver lining, and and I think many are hopeful that elements of those uh, telehealth visits will carry forward for the exact reasons you outlined, and particularly for folks who are living in rural areas that maybe don't have easy access to a clinic, still being able to meet with all the specialists, get the complete care that they're searching for, that's a, that's a big win for everyone. Yeah, we were actually able to um, do virtual ALS clinics, so the full team is able to see Oh, wow. Uh, certain patients, which is so helpful for patients. We have patients in Alaska that are getting a full ALS clinic team without having to leave their state, which is amazing mm. since to come to Oregon, you have to quarantine or it's suggested quarantine for 14 right. days, which isn't possible for coming to an appointment. Right. Lauren, uh, this has been really helpful. Thank you for so much uh, background on your role and how things go uh, in an ALS clinic. My last question for you is for anyone who maybe is on the fence about attending a multidisciplinary clinic. There are reasons that folks are unsure about that environment, and some of them you've already covered in terms of uh, traveling great distances or not having access. And some folks do have concerns, too, just about the length of clinical visits, that sort of thing. What would you say to someone who's maybe on the fence about going to a clinic like yours and, and to encourage them that that may be the best route for them? I would say try it once. That's what I always tell my patients. Try it one time. Come to an in-person clinic one time and just try the full team. If you can't make it for the full team, because I know it's a lot, mm. we can reduce it down to your needs if absolutely necessary. But you'll see the difference. 
And there's so much data out there that shows the difference, but who cares about numbers? You're going to feel the difference after the end. And after hearing all these people that care so much and know so much about ALS, because they've been doing it for so many years and so much knowledge, you're going to feel different. And their focus is quality of life and making everything easier for you. That's a great endorsement from someone who knows, from someone who is in that setting every single day. Lauren, thank you again so much for your time today and for this in-depth look at uh, nurse coordinators and their role in ALS clinics. We really appreciate your expertise. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, two great conversations this week, Mike. Uh, I was always excited to hear from Leslie Ryan, and uh, your your conversation with Lauren was timely as tomorrow, Friday, is Certified Nurses Day. So a good time to sit back and reflect on the critical role that uh, nurses play in the clinical setting and in our healthcare system more generally. Very much a year to celebrate uh, nurses uh, and the really important work they do. And, and as Lauren talked about, their presence uh, in ALS clinics is critical. That will conclude our show for this week. Be sure to follow this podcast at ConnectingALS.org or wherever you listen. And if you're willing to leave a quick review uh, for us on your favorite podcast service, we would love that as well. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter for all of the latest content. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening. We'll connect with you again soon. Music